the social life. It's the Darren Show. The Darren Show. Don't ask if he's single. You already know. Cause it's the Darren Show. A simple name for a simple guy with a simple face. It's the Darren Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Darren Show. I have an amazing guest this week. Very, very interested to talk to this guy. One of my favorite Big Brother players of all time. Uh, it's Godfrey Manguiza from Big Brother Canada 3. How you doing, Godfrey? Hey, what's up? I'm all right, man. Uh, just surviving, living. <laughs> yes, uh, Godfrey was the runner-up of Big Brother Canada 3. Uh, robbed of his rightful victory. Robbed. Um, <laughs> Only robbery where you get to keep your wallet, man, but it was not a good night for me. <laughs> I, I hope you still give Gordon, give Jordan crap every time you see him about uh, <laughs> him and his friends. That's like literally like my, yeah, like that's like a monthly tradition. Just reminding <laughs> JP about the blind side. <laughs> he never yes. gets old. Um, so, uh, so Godfrey... Uh, when did when did you like get into Big Brother? Had had you been a fan of it before you went on the show? So like, interesting thing: the first time I ever watched Big Brother at all was actually back in Zimbabwe in Africa. They had a spinoff, a version of it, which was Big Brother Africa, in which basically you'd have one person from each continent come in representing their continent, and they live in a house, you know, vote each other out. And then I remember watching it. I was like, oh, this is pretty interesting. Like, that's before I even really was into the whole psychology of the game, the social play. I just thought it was cool that these people were getting to live on camera and then you could watch everything they get to do. And there seemed to be a lot of drama in it. So that's like the first time I ever became familiar with the term Big Brother. But when I really became a fan of the show was when I moved here into Canada and then I watched my first season, which was season 10, that Dan Giesling won. And then I was just like, wow, these guys are absolute idiots. How do they <laughs> let this old man, Jerry, who literally can't do shit, and Dan, the sneaky guy, get to the end when literally, I remember, I don't, I remember who was I rooting for there. I thought like Keisha or Jesse or one of those were going to like kind of go to the end and run with it. So that was the first time I really became a fan, you know, because it was just interesting how Dan was able to actually win that. And I was like, wow, that's a crazy game. Yeah, I, I love that. Like, uh, I think a lot of people would describe season 10 as, you know, oh, it's crazy how good Dan was. Um, but you're like, it's crazy how much how idiotic they yeah, were. Yeah, that's, that's what was surprising me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so did you did you you grew up in Zimbabwe? Is that where you grew yeah, up? Yeah, I grew, I grew up there. What was what was that like? Yeah, it was a, a little different from Canada. <laughs> in yeah. terms of, like it's because, uh, well, it was under dictatorship, right? So it, it, not a really fun place to live. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, basically what you would think of when you think of a third world country. Yeah, like basically the stereotype on TV, like, you know, people hungry, starving, people getting killed, just like a savage place. Like it's almost it's almost like a, like a fantasy <laughs> when I look back at it. Just mm -hmm. comparing the two, how different they are. But yeah, it, it, it was. I had a good time there, but it was not not the ideal place to live. I'd put yeah. it that way. Well, like, like what? What is? Is there a way to describe the experience? Uh, to like, does it just seem normal to you? Well, to like, it would be weird to describe it to somebody who's never really lived there, right? Like, well, yeah. like 
I'd say like uh, imagine just being poor and <laughs> and on top of that all the other countries hate you that's pretty much what it's like yeah because like the way Zimbabwe was set up when it was colonized by the British and we gained independence from it there was still a lot of property that was owned by the British settlers from generation to generation right and so what kind of set off everything to go downhill is that all that land that had been owned by, let's say you suppose your great, great granddad came to Africa several years ago and finessed, stole some shit. And then like you kind of aren't running it now, but you've been running the business legitimately, but the business was gained through like unrightfully kind of like that. Mm-hmm. So when the British gained, when we gained independence and they left the country, the new regime decided to take, seize all that property from the people who were living there. So those people, their argument was obviously that, but hey, man, I didn't do anything. <laughs> I've just been living here. As far as I know, this is mine. But then they were like, no, it's not yours. It's actually ours now. And then like, it didn't help that they also did that kind of overnight, just came in, kicked the door, took the land and said, goodbye, man, you got to find your way back to Britain. And obviously the Brits were not too happy about that. <laughs> Maybe, I guess they wanted uh, some sort of formality, you know, like talk it out, you know, like kind of a diplomatic way to do it, you know. And then on top, uh, to make matters worse, the land that was seized, you would think it would have been given to the people. But then it was pretty much just given to corrupt politicians. And it was all a scheme of we're taking the land back to the rightful people. But no, it was just like we're taking this business for ourselves now. (laughs) So that's what happened. And after that happened, most of the Brits left. And Britain cut ties and said, what you guys did is wrong. And then we got a whole bunch of sanctions on us. And then, like, it's just like, uh, picture Gaddafi. <laughs> that's, like, that's his idol. <laughs> yeah. My former president. Yeah. So it, it, it just, like, that's where the country went downhill. And this all happened, like, several, like, I'm talking in the 1970, 80, Everything was good back then. So like the country from there just really crumbled and it hasn't been like a really nice place to live. So not so much that it's a bad place, like there's no war or anything, but it's just that because no other countries trade with Zimbabwe, you're something that would be as cheap as a loaf of bread is now highly inflated and costs the equivalent over here what it would cost you to let's say buy like a smartphone or a TV. So it's like a lot difficult to get like the basic, you know, the basic needs for survival. Yeah. It's like a little history lesson. <laughs> no, it's, it's really interesting. So were you, did you have trouble like getting, getting food? Well, it kind of happened as a process. Like to be honest, like I actually grew up like pretty like well off. Right. Like I had like, you know, a decent place, you know, I lived with my, I live with my dad and then like sometimes I go to my grandparents' house and we'd always have a feast every time, you know, because like I said, like the way the country kind of went downhill, it went down as a process, you know, like it went down like year after year, things would get bad. And I'd say like when things really, when shit really hit the fan is probably around, because like I remember throughout my childhood from birth till around like grade three, Grade four, I was still eating good, man. We were eating Viannas, you know, sausages, all the good shit you guys eat here, you know? <laughs> but then after that, when the sanctions really started to kick in, you know, because like the president we had was, you know, I'd say imagine Trump on steroids. 
Yeah. <laughs> you can picture a more belligerent and <laughs> insane guy than Trump. That would be Robert Mugabe. I think the two would quite get along pretty well. Yeah. You know, and he, he had iron fist, man. Like he he did some shit and then from then on, I just remember the next year you you when you went to go buy bread, you had to stand in line. They were like literally, I kid you not, you ever been to Wonderland or any popular amusement park, you know, and you see that best ride and how the yeah. lineup is so long. That was the lineup for bread and milk. So like, it's like people had the money, people were not broke, but they didn't have the food. <laughs> it was so limited. Mm-hmm. So therefore you were by default starving, even with all that cash in your wallet. So like, it, that's when it started to get really bad. And I'd say 2000 and one, two, three, four, five, six. It just went worse and worse and worse until like, because I remember when I came to Canada, I actually hadn't drank milk or eaten cheese in about four or five years. I didn't know what it tasted like anymore because it was such a luxury now. So if we went from turning up, eating good, to now you're like, what is cheese? <laughs> like if you had cheese, you were balling. Like literally like, cheese or yeah. milk so yeah it, like it just went bad as a process so i wouldn't say like i had it too hard growing up but by circumstance like you know as it went on worse and worse i had it you know pretty bad enough that like i had to like get the hell out of there so so it, well like as it started to go downhill like the idea was we need to we need to get out of here yeah exactly because my dad had actually left quite before like you know like I guess he he was thinking ahead. <laughs> so he had gone to like the US. He left when I was uh I think I was like nine nine years old then, yeah. So I was living with my grandparents and then he was in the US and kinda like making money from there, trying to send some, you know, it sent like maybe two hundred dollars a month, which was quite a lot back then, you know. And then like uh until eventually he moved to Canada in two thousand and seven. And then when I was about 16, that's when I came to Canada after, yeah. But the plan was to get out of there, which also it was a pretty hard place to get out, you know, because like the government didn't really want people getting out, mm-hmm. you know, going to like, you know, the Western countries and then kind of telling people how bad it is. Like pretty much what I'm doing now is what they were trying to avoid. <laughs> so they, they wanted to keep people in there. So trying to get a visa, like you really had to, like we had to pay like quite a sizable fee, you know. Like, I think maybe about like a thousand each, which is a lot of cash, you know, for somebody living in Africa. But you had to come up with that money, bribe the consulate, bribe everybody, you know, bribe everybody up until you take the flight and leave. Because like it, it was actually illegal for you to leave the country to renounce your citizenship. Yeah. Wow. So you you grew up uh, primarily with your with your dad and then. Yes. Uh, then oh, with yeah. Your grandparents. Yeah, because my mom passed away like uh, way back, like when I was three. And then like, so I always lived with my dad and then like my grandparents. Yeah, kind of back and forth, my dad and my grandparents. Yeah. Um, Do you have any siblings? Yeah, I have two siblings. So they were they older or younger? Yeah, both older. Yeah. Did they have uh, like an easier time that whole thing or uh, was it was it tougher on them being older? I I, like to be honest, I don't even really know because like I never actually even processed it that like I grew up without a mom because I always had my grandma who was like such a mother figure to me Mm -hmm. that like it never I think the first time I even was curious enough to ask about like, hey, like, you know, like what was mom like or can I see him? picture of my mom was probably when I was grade 
four. And in the class, I think the teacher had been asking, like, you know, oh, what does your mom and dad do for your living, you know? And then she comes to ask to me, you know, and she's like, oh, yeah, what does your mom and dad do for your living? And I was like, oh, no, you know, like, I don't live with my mom. And she's like, oh, where's your mom? Like, <laughs> I guess she didn't really quite get the hint. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she was, like, kind of pushing, like, oh, where does she live? I'm like, ah, no, yeah, she's not with us. She's like, where, where is she? Like, I pretty much had to spell it out, like, maybe my mom died. Yeah, that's when I asked my sister, I was like, oh, hey, you know, like, oh, like, let me see a picture of her and then show me a picture of her. And yeah. But like, I just never really felt that much like absence because I did grow up with like a motherly figure. And also, I had my sister, my two older sisters. So there was never an absence of that like maternal figure in the house. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, so you yeah. were like really close with your family? Yeah, yeah, pretty close. Yeah, you know. So like, it's kind of, yeah, like, in a way, it's a good way because it never made me really think growing up that, oh, like, I don't really have my mom. And it also helps that, as you said, I don't have any memory of her, so I don't really have any attachment of to feel, you know. But right. but my sister, she was six years old. My old, No, no, my oldest was, uh, she's six years older than me. She was, she was nine years old, so, like, she kind of knows a bit more. But as far as for me, as far as I know, I just remember it always being my grandma and my dad in the house, yeah, and my sisters. So you mentioned that it was uh, it was like dangerous there. What like what was the the danger living there, apart from the food situation? Yeah, apart from the food situation, starving. It was also a really hostile political climate because you had like with any nation when things are not really going that well, you're gonna have two factions kind of fighting for control. And so depending on your political allegiance, it could have been pretty dangerous. Cause like, I remember me, like my grandma, she was pro MDC, which was the opposition party. And she was quite very involved in that, you know? And then it, it was pretty dangerous to be associated with that side. Cause if people find out you could just, you know, an accident could happen. And they wouldn't really, like, you know, they were not that quiet about that. Like, so it was, it was really dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Like, people were getting beat up. I remember the guy at the time who was the leader of the opposition party would always be getting beat the shit out of him. Like, I don't even know why he did it. He must have loved the country really well. But that was the life, you know. And the other side would do the same, too. Like, if they saw you, like, you know, hey, you support this guy, okay, we're kicking your ass. So... That's what it was. And then some people were actually getting killed, tortured for information, you know, because they always wanted to shut down rallies. And like I said, the president we had, with, this guy was a nut job. Like you would be walking down the streets, <laughs> minding your own business, like going to school or whatnot. Or you'd have vendors who were selling food on the side of the road, which is like kind of common, right? And then like you just see these military vehicles would just pull up and they just grab everybody, but like, get in the car, get in the car. And you're like, yo, where, where, where we going? Where we going? Like, Don't ask questions, get in. You know, they take the bus. The bus would take you to like a, a big stadium, which is like a rally. And then I'd load you guys inside. And then they tell you guys, you guys got to sing now. The president's coming. That way, when they filmed the video, it would show that, wow, the president had a huge rally. And that huge support by many of those people were actually picked up off the street and told you got to go in. And like, it's not like once you go in there, you can, you cannot be excited. You're like, you had people, they were like beating you up, man. Like saying, cheer, you know, that's your president. And that too also come election time, 
you'd actually have groups of the military come to intimidate people to vote a certain way by kind of saying that all, like, let's say they'd come to a neighborhood that was mostly maybe liberal and they'd say, oh, we saw the votes from last year and we know that this side, there were a lot of votes leaning to the opposition. So that got to change this time around or else we're taking, we're cutting the lights off or something like that, you know, which they would, they'd actually like cut the electricity off. And there's nothing you can really do about it. That was just the way of life where you just know that like you can't trust the authority figures, right? Yeah, so like it, it, it was dangerous, you know? Did you see this happening like yourself or did you just know that, that it was happening around you? Oh, absolutely. I saw it happening, definitely. Yeah. I even remember, because my grandma actually would always dress me up as a girl a lot of the times in case like the cops or like the soldiers came to the house because what they started doing when you were around like 15 years old or 16 or or even as early as 14, they would want to get young boys and take them to like a military camp to kind of indoctrinate them, you know, like fill them with all this propaganda about like the leading party and making them support that, you know? So like, it's like, it was kind of like the little brainwash program they had. And it was mostly in response that they saw that a lot of the youth we're becoming more supportive of the opposition party and we're kind of being more influenced by that literature and kind of getting an idea of what's going on. So to counter that, they would get a lot of young kids, which it was, they'd make it seem like it was optional, but really there was no saying no. They just show up and say, okay, the kid's going to be coming with us. We're going to feed him. We're going to give him food. He'll be gone for just like six months or something where he it's for the country is training you know but no like it was a brainwash program yeah so like i i i avoided that a lot of times you know it didn't help i was a pretty kid too right so like I, <laughs> when they <laughs> I, I could pull off a look in a dress <laughs> how, how did you feel about like what were your thoughts on this as a kid like did it make you angry were you scared like wh- how did you feel about it like it's because it's so normal and if you've lived there the whole your whole life it's kind of just like how life is you know yeah it would be like here in the western world somebody asking you like you know well how do you feel about kind of this you know well people here really feel strongly too because like the whole environment allows that but over there like i really like i certainly didn't like it and i always knew that like i ne- i did not want to spend the rest of my life in zimbabwe you know even at a young age and like 10, 11, like I knew it was pretty bad. Like I wanted to get the hell up out of there. Like, and I watched a lot of American shows and I saw how they were living there where their biggest concern was somebody calling them a name. And I was like, well, I, I want to go there. <laughs> that yeah. seems pretty fun, you know? So like, yeah, like I, I knew definitely that it was pretty bad and I knew there were better places to live. So yeah, like it, it did make me angry. And I wanted to, I, remember like for so many years i always wanted to get out of zimbabwe i'd always whenever my dad called from the states i'd be like oh when are we going like do you have the visa now like for literally seven years straight i'd just be asking that like when's where's the visa like when are we going when are we going out because like i told you it was bad that's oh man and even boarding school don't even get me started it was just like an awful experience that i'd wish upon no one but like i said it was obviously there were days that were fun but the days that were bad were really bad. It's it's funny. I was going to ask you about school next. Uh, what, what was the boarding school like? 
Yeah, boarding school, it was pretty, it was pretty tough, you know, because like in Zimbabwe and in actually, I think in most African countries, like the teachers are actually allowed to beat you up. And when I say beat you up by discipline, I don't mean like a little clap. I mean, like actually kick your ass, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like beat you like on the ground and shit. Like, and that's normal. Like, cause like since I was great, since I was in preschool, that's always been how it is. So that's not even one of the things you would ever question or challenge or say that, oh, this is wrong. It would just seem normal. So like boarding school, like, you know, I was a bad kid with well-deserved. But at the same time, some were a bit, were a bit little extra, you know. And it was just like a savage environment, man, when you went to boarding school. Because you got to meet a lot of other kids. And like I said, as bad as Zimbabwe is, there's also some parts that are good and some parts that are really bad. And you meet the kids from the really bad parts, man. And I remember like first day of school, the bullying was bad too back in boarding school. Like I remember the first day, literally some dude just came in, one of the older kids. He was like in form four, which like, I guess the equivalent, like I'd be like grade eight. And then he'd be like uh, grade 11 or 12. They just came in. They'll just come in your dorm with an empty water bottle like an empty jug actually and just put it in the middle and say okay when i come back i want this thing filled up you guys gotta fill it with like you know your orange juice and shit <laughs> and then like you had to do it because you're obviously scared but that was like a there was like a huge culture of bullying where that was actually acceptable and even if you told the teacher you were like well you should fill it up with the orange juice then and like that's yeah and sometimes it would even be the teachers who would come on your dormitory because they too were hungry. When I look back at it, I kind of understand now and don't really blame them as much, even though it was still shitty to do to a little kid. But some of them were hungry and like they'd come in and say, oh, you know, like if your kids have any, like, you know, if your kids have any cereal, you know, let me have some of that or whatever. Or sometimes the teachers would actually pay some of the kids because obviously the teacher couldn't be doing that. Like if word got out, that would be problematic. So they'd have the older kids do it and kind of bring the food for them. And yeah, it was just like a, a overall bad place where you really had to learn to survive in there and either get clicked up immediately. And I'm lucky I had an older sister at the same school and some of the older kids were also trying to date my sister. So I'd kind of play off that and be like, oh, hey, you know, like my sister's name's Ella. I'd be like, oh, Ella, I heard her talk about you early on at home. She always says good things about you. And like the kids, you know, like the older kids would be like, oh, really, what's she saying, man? And they're trying to take me under their wing and say, oh, you want some, you know, you want some of this, man? You want some chips? If you need anything, let me know. And that was kind of my survival technique, you know, just like play off that and be like, oh, yeah, she likes you. She's awesome. You know, tell her, you know, pour, pour some more of that lemonade. I'll tell you some more. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like a, it's a morbid game of, of Big Brother that you it had to really play. It really is. Yeah. That like when I actually watched Big Brother, that's the first thing, the first parallel I kind of saw. I was like, wow, this is just like boarding school. How you have all the cool kids kind of band together right away. And then you have the outcast. <laughs> you have like the oddball. And it just like made sense. And because like I was in boarding school for pretty much like four or five years, I felt like it was just so natural like to navigate yourself in there because it was such a familiar environment where it's like, oh, it's like, okay, I've done this before. 
I've been in a place like this where you got to suck up, you got to find who's the head honcho, and you got to kiss ass, you know? Yeah, like you can't just come in there hot, guns blazing, and start targeting the man in charge. Like you got to affiliate yourself with the people who are kind of running the show. Because in boarding school, you also had the people who were running it, you know, people who really knew how to finesse in there, man. The Dr. Wills, the freaking, the Dan Geeslings of the Big Brother, people who seemed to always have food every time, who always seemed to not be the ones getting bullied with the older kids. You're like, how are they doing that? But it was like a, it was like a little psychological warfare in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. Like how much that does parallel your game too. Like you you played like such a survival game where you were able to position yourself in the right spot. Like, yeah. All the way just through. be kind of fly on the wall and not ruffle any feathers. Yeah, and in board school, I actually slept a lot too. <laughs> <laughs> and also like knowing when to call someone out and like who to call out in like the right spot. Right. Like, I'm yeah, sure exactly. Was... You know, like, yeah. Cause I guess like even like, or even in high school, you know, this. like sometimes when you see somebody who everyone else is against, you might want to join the crowd <laughs> and you might want to call that person out too, just to kind of, you know, solidify your allegiance to the other side. So yeah, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, you, you talked about like, uh, like you were a bad kid. So, you know, some of the, the beatings were like maybe deserved. Did you feel, did you feel like, like, because this was so normal, did you feel like you deserved it when, when you'd get. Yeah. Hit? Cause it was absolutely like, I'm telling you, it was really normal that one of the things that I found really weird was when I came to Canada and the teachers would not even lay a hand on you. Like the most they do is give you like a hard scolding and that's about it. And it was such something so foreign to me that I was like, wow, kids don't get beat here. But now, obviously, like living in Canada for now, for like as long as I have, now it kind of seems weird to see a kid get it. Even on the bus, if you see a parent get smack a kid, you kind of go like, oh. But really, like back when I came in, I was like, man, beat the shit out of that little kid, man. Like little kids, uh, yeah, that little kid's got some problems. So like it's almost like and also when you grow up and you see that normal, you are more likely to end up doing that, too, mm-hmm. when you're an uh, adult and you're a parent, because that's the only parenting method you've known. Right. I think the time it actually became illegal is in 2013 or 14 is when they actually made an official law in Zimbabwe that like educators are no longer allowed to discipline kids or at least there was a limit now, like or a stick about like a certain size or whatever. But back then, like we got our asses beat, like, you know, like the teacher would tell you, okay, go, go find yourself a stick. And one of them like, and it's so weird. Like the sticks they used to beat you, they had their own personalities, you know, like some teachers, the nicer ones would have like a little stick where like they really, you could tell they really didn't want to beat you up. Like they just give you like a little tap on the hand. And then you had some of the psychos who they actually got off on that. Like they had like electric cables, like freaking, like you ever felt uh, a hippo tail? No, a I hippo haven't. tail is like a whip. Like literally it will slice you up when you get like hit with one of those things. And one of them actually had a hippo tail that he was beating people up with. And in most provinces in Zimbabwe, it was actually illegal to use a hippo tail. Like you needed to be licensed to be able to beat somebody up with that, you know, because usually the cops would use that for interrogation. 
and you'd actually have a schedule of how many whips you're going to get. Cause if they gave you too many whips in one day, like you'd be really badly damaged. So they literally tell you like, okay, one whip on Thursday, you're coming back for the second one. Like it was really like, I'm telling you, it was bad. And I remember one day when the cops actually came to the school and they were trying to crack down on teachers beating people up. Cause it was, there was always, I feel like around like, you know, 2011, no, 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 2011, that's when the law changed, but around like 2006, seven, which is when I just about to leave Zimbabwe, you actually had like the military, they came to the school and they shut everything down. And then they just went in, held an assembly and said, okay, all the teachers, you guys got to go out. And we're like, holy, what is going on? And then they started asking us, oh, you know, do you guys get beat up? And we're like, ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, okay, we want all the names of the teachers who've been beating people up this year. Because like they had like kind of put in a bill to say that should be seized entirely. And obviously we were giving up the names, man. I was writing up the chef. Everybody's <laughs> name was coming up on there, man. And then literally like these guys like actually... And the weird thing is <laughs> the cops beat up the teachers <laughs> on that day, which is, I'm like, man, like you guys are trying to send a message, not for no violence. Don't discipline people with violence. But when you say, okay, we see you guys have been breaking the rules. Here's your punishment. We're going to beat your ass now <laughs> and then leave. But from that year, I remember the teachers didn't lay a hand on anybody for at least like eight months. And then they went back to normal again, but man crazy it's, times it's, it's it's crazy how like how trapped you are in that cycle like where it's like oh you, you shouldn't be hitting kids we'll hit we'll hit you first and then like that's yeah exactly you know like it's just like that's like the the logic there yeah uh what what kind of bad things were you doing to uh in school yeah just, <laughs> just like a, what a kid would do you know like just not listening like i never really liked listening to teachers <laughs> listening to authority and like, I never really liked the idea of school in the first place. I just thought it was so primitive. I thought that the things we were learning were not things we wanted to learn, were not things that were gonna help us. And in Zimbabwe, like you think the education system is messed up in North America. Like over there, like, to be honest, people are really smart in Zimbabwe because like it's so you're forced to have good grades there. So it was, it's basically the opposite of here. And it has its benefits, but at the same time, it also has its bad stuff. Like, you know how kind of here you'll get a participation trophy, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like I, I remember some races, you actually get a, a real medal for coming in fifth. <laughs> but over there, it is the opposite where with education, it's almost like a competition, as you would see with sports, where like every school year, they'll round up the marks kind of calculate everything and then the person who excelled the most out of everybody that person will come in number one which basically means that you had like straight A's and everything the guy who had the closest average or girl is number two number three and then in a class of like 30 people until you go to number 31 <laughs> and then I was always number 30 31 because I did not give a damn about school like I literally like I just go in like I was just like I'm here to have fun so that was kind of the education system where you like you it was really a competitive thing 
where it's like, you know, you got to be the best. You're like, push, you know, you got to win. You got to be the smartest kid in the room. You got to do this and you got to do this. And then most of the courses too, you didn't get to really choose what you wanted to do. When the school year started, I remember in boarding school, you had four choices. You could take accounting, you could take agriculture, you could take woodwork, and you could take building. And here's the kicker, you didn't get to choose, so they were not really four choices. <laughs> there are only four outcomes, which you might end up in one of those four. Unless you're lucky enough, maybe you got like an extra 20 on you, you can pay one of the, bribe one of the teachers, they can switch your classes. But as soon as the school started, like you, we had kind of like grades here. I don't know if you ever had where they have like the green, red, yellow, blue, kind of like that. What kind of that separate the, so you'd all be in the same grade, but that's like different majors, so to speak. Hmm. So like the person taking the accounting cannot take the agriculture because that's your major accounting. Like you'd still take like English class, you'd still take math. You'd still take some of those classes, but that would be sort of your major though. So like when you're done, that would be kind of what you're going to be doing in life. Yeah. Which is really weird because like I'm pretty sure there's more than four things. (laughs) You don't have to become a farmer or an accountant or a builder. Like I'm like, what about architects? (laughs) What about I want none of the above. Like, I just want to run like a freaking hot dog stand. But yeah, like you had to pick those. And then I wound up in the building class, which I did not like. But like the way they picked them was really just like ignorant, man. Like they just say, okay, you look strong. You take the building, you know, you look sharp. You look like you're good with your hands. (laughs) (laughs) Or like, you know, or your dad took this when he came to this school. So you take that. So like that was kind of like, and mine was building, which I really did not like. I learned a lot from it though. Like learned how to like build structures, you know, foundations and architecture and stuff. But it it was not fun. Yeah. And then like, that's how kind of like the education system was, you know, where you really had to like come first. We even had a thing called prize giving day where we would honor the kids (laughs) who came first throughout the entire year. And then kind of shame the ones who came last. So it it was pretty messed up, man. But when you're living there, like, that's just normal. You know, you're like, because like the whole culture, it's like to push you to be, to excel, to win, to always be the best, you know, which I don't know which one's worse, you know, that one or the one here where it doesn't matter if you suck, you know, like I feel like there should be a balance where you're not so much putting so much pressure on kids to like, you know, excel in education And at the same time, you're kind of not just being passive and letting them know that it all doesn't matter, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, education in general. I don't. I feel like uh, we have a we as a society just have not cracked that. Yeah, code. we haven't quite figured that out yet. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. what makes it worse is when you actually see the people doing well in life, and you're like, wait a minute, how's this guy in the middle class? And their grades were bad. And those guys yeah. who were telling to excel are not doing that great. So like, you know, I, or at least like they should be honest with the way they push it and not say that if you like, you know, do all the right things, you know, you get all these courses. Cause I went to university too, and I'm by no means a millionaire yet. <laughs> so I feel like the whole push of, oh, you know, you do this, you do that. You're going to be successful no matter what. I feel like it's kind of misleading. And at least they should just market it as, hey, take, get these good grades just for your own self. 
if you want to be smarter, know more about the world, but not so much marketed as, oh, you got to be successful, you know? Because I feel like that's the selling point. That's the only way you're going to get somebody to spend 20 grand on a degree anyways. Yeah, I like I like I know for myself, I didn't care for school until like I, I didn't care for school until I took a class in high school that made me like actually interested, if that makes sense. Like, oh, yeah, wait, exactly. I can, like, yeah. learning for the sake of learning and, and I can enjoy this like, oh, I can I can approach school this way. That's what um, I'm saying. That's yeah. what it should be. You should actually be saying like, you know, I'm doing this because I enjoy it. And I know I think in China or Japan, they kind of have a similar way where you even have people, old Chinese guys, 80 years old, still going to school because the way they kind of approach it is not so much as a means to an end. It's just Mm -hmm. like you're going there to be educated and learn about new things. Not so much for you're doing this to get a career, you know, interested. It's lifelong learning. That's a, I worked is, in a nonprofit that focused on stuff like that. Um, so, uh, so you you were in school. You eventually you're thinking like uh, we got to get out of here. What was the um, did, like the actual experience of you mentioned that you needed to like bribe people and like even when you got on the plane, uh, yeah, like, there was people like was that like a nerve wracking experience? Oh yeah, it certainly was because like it couldn't gone like both ways. You know the passports we bought off Kijiji could have been fallen fake, right? Yeah. So like we, it, it was nerve wracking just until I had actually, not even after I had left the country, but until I had actually gotten into Canada and it said, oh, I'm finally here, you know, like I'm, like I can say, I've made it out, like I've escaped. So it, it was definitely nerve-wracking because I was thinking, I was like, oh, what if something happens? You know, what if they stop us, say, you know, you guys, where you guys go in? Because I remember them asking us questions at the airport because when we first left, my grandma came like the year after, but it was me and my two sisters. And my oldest sister at that time was, uh, how old was she, 22? And then my other one was 18. So they were kind of asking us like, oh, you know, like, what are you guys in leaving for? When are you coming back? We're like, oh, yeah, we're coming back next month, man. <laughs> we just going to a wedding. It's like, oh, who's wedding? What's the guy? You know, what's the name? You know, give us all this. Because they knew a lot of people were really leaving the country like that, you know. And like they wanted, really wanted to keep people in because they didn't want anyone coming, going out you know, Western countries and then kind of like talking about how bad things are or have the narrative that people, it's so bad in Zimbabwe that people are leaving. So yeah, it was definitely nerve wracking, you know, like such an experience just like getting to escape there, you know, like, cause it's almost like if you don't escape, your life is going to end in there. You're going to grow old in Zimbabwe, which is, which I wish I didn't have to fear that. Cause like, you know, like I'd always would have loved to stay in my country and live there. I had a lot of friends too who I was leaving and almost everybody I knew was still in there. And I was going to a different country where I don't even know anybody. Like, so it was definitely nerve wracking to leave and also like kind of anxious about how it's going to be in Canada. Like, am I going to like it? Am I going to fit in? Like, you know, cause I'd always, I'd also read some bad things too, you know, like about Canada, like, Oh, you know, it's dangerous there. You have to speak French. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you did you feel any guilt about having to like leave your friends and knowing that they might not definitely be able to yeah leave? I d- definitely felt like guilty you know because it was like I'm out there 
even when you're giving the goodbye party, it's kind of awkward because people are like, bye, but like we're still in here suffering, you know? So I, I'd, like, I'd like to compare it to when you're getting out of jail yeah. and your friends are really happy for you, but are they really? <laughs> when they still got to serve maybe a life sentence, but yeah, like my friends, they they were happy though to to see me go, and some of them were also sad because like you know, like we were friends, you know, like we hung out. But yeah, it was definitely awkward to say the least. Are you able to keep in touch with any of them, or is it? I still have some on Facebook. Yeah, like obviously, like the relationship, it's not like what it was because I haven't seen them in years. But here and there, I will get that random message where they say, "Oh hey, how you doing, man?" You know, like, and I was like. And they're like, oh, I'm in Germany now. You know, some of them are in Australia. And I'm glad some of them able to make it out too. And then some who are still in there just telling me that, hey, Godfrey, man, life's hard. You know, get me a visa. Can you help me out? I saw you on Big Brother, man. And I'm like, dude, I'm not rich, man. I was on TV, yeah. But I like, you know, maybe when, once I get a few millions, I can finesse something. But I don't, I don't have Trudeau's number on my phone, man. But yeah, people are still trying to, are still trying to get out, you know, and the ones who are there, who are still living, they keep telling me about like how hard it is, like how like, you know, it's so hard that like people are even using U.S. currency down there because the dollar is so bad. And some of it is even fake U.S. currency, but nobody gives a shit anymore. <laughs> They're just like, fuck it, man. We're just going to use this. Yeah. Uh, what, what made you choose Canada? Canada. Well, like I didn't really choose Canada. My dad was originally living in Dallas, but he was like always saying like how bad it is in there in America. Because I remember they had like George Bush over there or something, and it's like, yeah, hey, Bush is going crazy. He's gonna kill us all or some shit. <laughs> yeah, and that was also like you know really when you have the war in Iraq going on, mm-hmm. and you have things that are really unclear about the direction of America where it's going. So, and also it's really difficult in America too, to get a green card there. Whereas in Canada, it was a lot, a uh, lot easier because Canada is usually looking for people and is always welcoming immigrants every time. So like, he, and he had just said in general, he also had a few friends of his who were actually laughing. I'm like, Oh, what are you doing in America? Like, you know, <laughs> like come to Canada. It's way better here, <laughs> which I'm glad I did end up coming here because i really like canada you know like it's it's and also another thing the healthcare too because it had mm. canada he also came here for the healthcare and everything and he had lived in america for a few years i think about like six years prior to that so he kind of like you know he kind of knew that it, it wasn't that great there at the time at least yeah well i i imagine uh you're gonna be extra vigilant about the president after living under uh the president in zimbabwe Oh, yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, Bush, he's fine, man. Like, we'll take Bush <laughs> as long as at least he ain't a dictator, you know? <laughs> yeah, I would have taken Trump over, like, yeah, the president over Mugabe. Yeah, because, like, I'm telling you, Mugabe was an actual what you think when you think of dictator, you know, like almost mm-hmm. like a caricature of a dictator. <laughs> like, the guy was just like a weird, which, as most dictators are, just like a loud charismatic personality but you know the guy is just pure evil in the inside like i'll tell you one example like this guy was such a douchebag that when he gave his speeches this guy would be speaking in like i'm telling you like he'd be giving a speech to like a bunch of people who don't speak any english at all like literally 
like people who are the poorest parts of Zimbabwe. And this guy would be talking in a British accent, <laughs> using like all the big words he can. And he was just like, just a pretentious, like, he, he was an asshole. Yeah. He literally made, had a song made about the prime minister of the UK at the time, who was Tony Blair and George Bush. They were both, George Bush was president at that time, pretty much talking about, because <laughs> in Zimbabwe, you have a thing called like a Blair toilet, which is basically a, it's like a variation of a toilet, but like kind of like a more, like a more makeshift toilet. And then the prime minister of the UK, whose name was Tony Blair, so had a song, somebody composed a song, pretty much talking about the Blair that he knows over there as a toilet. And then after that, all oh, the UK, they were pissed. Like they put in like more sanctions on us, which was so unnecessary because it's like, we already have it bad. Why are you aggravating them even more? Because they actually played that song in the British Parliament when they were having a discussion of whether to lessen the sanctions on Zimbabwe mm-hmm. or not. And they were like, oh, look at what the Zimbabwean people are doing. Such a childish thing to... Yeah. Because, well, yeah. he was living good, right? So, like, for him, it makes yeah. no difference whether they can put as many sanctions as they can, which is why I never understood the point of political sanctions whenever I hear people saying, oh, you know, the U.S. is going to put sanctions on North Korea. Because I'm like, that doesn't hurt the regime. It only hurts the people because they're the ones who are going to feel that. Like, if you're running a country, you're probably... You have a lot of money and it doesn't matter how expensive things are going to be like you and your people are going to be fine, you know? So it's kind of counterproductive, I think at least. So, uh, what, what happened to this guy? Is he still the president there? Well, like this year, actually, they finally like had a revolution and were able to, they had a coup actually. And the military just, they just took him out. Yeah. Wow. They pretty much just like went to his house, the White House over there, and then said, yeah, like, you know, you're not the president anymore. So they literally had to do it by force. And right now they're kind of working out the transition of power. There's a new guy in, which is kind of both sides of the same coin, you know, like it's just yeah. a new face. It's like we, we've gotten this guy out, like, you know, like I'll have to see at least a year to see if it's really the new guy. Or they basically just found a scapegoat and said, okay, Mugabe. Because Mugabe is also, he's like 95 years old now. Oh, man. So this guy was president when my dad was my age. Literally, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, do you, do you, ho- do you like, wish that you, can, you could go back someday? Yeah, like I definitely, I'd, I'd actually love to go back in Zimbabwe sometime, you know, like... I feel like, you know, like maybe, you know, try something there. Who knows, man, you know, maybe make a difference, you know, maybe become, maybe run for president, <laughs> <laughs> which I can't anymore since I renounced my citizenship by coming here. But like, I'd want to go there in some capacity to make a change, you know, like I don't want to, I love Canada, you know, but I also feel kind of feel like a little responsibility to say if I can at least to try do something to make it better, you know? Cause I also mm-hmm. look at it this way that like, you know, it's really by luck that I was able to escape and get out. 
and like it easily could be me still there there could be no podcast right now i could still be yeah. living there hustling on the street so i'm like you know i at least owe it to the people who are still kind of struggling there to try and change and make a difference you know because i there's a lot of zimbabweans who have left the country and who are now doing well in their respective countries right now some in the uk and i feel like we all have sort of a responsibility to still at least come back and make it better for ourselves you know because like we don't have to have to run away from our country and hide somewhere you know like we shouldn't have to do that we should be able to go back and still live the place where we were born you know and still like enjoy our lives there and not have to feel like ah you know like i gotta start a life somewhere else so i really want to i'd like to go back to i guess to at least you know change it make a difference and it's still home for me you know i lived 16 years of my life there and I still definitely want to go back at some point because it's an awesome place. Like, you know, as it may be different culturally. I hope I haven't scared you by this <laughs> imagery of Zimbabwe, you know, like it's really not that bad. We actually have one of the seven wonders of the world, the Victoria Falls, mm-hmm. which are actually wider than the Niagara Falls, the widest falls in the world. And like, it's beautiful there. So there's a lot of there's a lot of nice places in Zimbabwe, definitely, you know. It's just like, you know, like it's the political climate and everything is pretty bad. But if you go there as a tourist, you definitely you have some fun, you know, the wildlife. I don't know if you've ever seen lions or elephants up close. Like it's beautiful, but it's just not yeah, it's not beautiful when you're living there. It's beautiful for yeah. a week vacation. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so once you got to Canada, what was the experience like there? Did, did you, uh, did you already know English at that point? Yeah, I, I knew, I understood English. I didn't speak English very well, but like I understood it cause like I watched, I listened to a lot of right. American music, you know, I watched a lot of American TV shows. Like what shows did I watch back there again? Watched a lot of soap operas cause my sister, you know. You have two sisters in the house. So I watched Days of Our Lives, Passions, The Bold and the Beautiful. Like a, a lot of, yeah, watched Friends, watched uh, Sunset Beach, 90210, High School, uh, Saved by the Bell, like all those shows. So like, yeah, like I understood English and kind of had an idea of North American culture, what it's like. Yeah. So what was it like trying to like fit in and, you know, acclimate to this new uh, environment? Like it was really like, yeah, it was quite a challenge too, you know, cause like you had to kind of get used to the lay of the land, but at the, it really wasn't as bad, you know, like I, cause coming into Toronto, it's such a multicultural country that I didn't really feel so much as an outsider as let's say maybe if I went to Calgary, <laughs> And you're coming from a country with all black people where you are the majority. And all of a sudden you are now the minority, you know, like you definitely, it would kick in a lot faster that, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm in a new place now. But coming to Toronto, it was really easy to kind of blend into it and ease into the transition. And it was still a bit different because like I said, you know, you're learning a whole new cultural like it's a it's a whole new culture just the way people do things where you're more free to say what you want you don't have to be scared anymore you don't have to like you know like fear the cops are gonna try to bribe you or finesse you you think the cops are bad in the u.s like they were pretty, 
Like I'm from a place where they do worse than just like beat you up and shoot you. Like over there, they actually are allowed to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a few rogue guys who have kind of have bad intentions. Like over there, it was literally like the cops can stop you and say, let's see what you got in the back. You have any food? Which once again, like I feel bad because I know most of those cops probably hadn't eaten all day and they were not really getting paid that good. <laughs> but still, like you shouldn't be stopping people on the traffic light and saying, okay, unless you give me some cash, I'm going to give you a ticket. So that was just like the thing, not having to be scared and knowing that like there's a rule of law to some degree, you know, like, so like that was, it, it was a bit of a transition, but in a good way, it was just like kind of getting rid of the habits of paranoia of, you know, like, is this going to happen? And knowing that you're in a new place where people are held accountable for stuff like that and where you're kind of like have a lot more freedom and enjoying that freedom, you know? Yeah. That's why when a lot of times people kind of say, oh, you're outspoken, you know, why do you always say this? You shouldn't say that. I'm like, well, I'm from a place where I wasn't allowed to say anything at all. So now I'm going to speak my mind, you know, because it's the law. Like, I'm definitely going to give my opinion on something, on what I like and what I don't like. Because, like, you know, I never really had the luxury to do that before, you know. And I do kind of feel like some people in Canada take their freedoms for granted a little bit. And they don't really understand how powerful it is to be able to say what you want and kind of do what you want to do, live where you want to live. Like, even the simple things, love who you want to love. Like, in Zimbabwe, it was actually illegal to be gay. So if you were gay the cops would have grounds to actually prosecute you and put you in jail. Heck, it was illegal to show PDA. I remember one time my sister and her boyfriend, they were making out on the streets and then they actually got stopped by the cops and the cops like actually took them in the back of the truck and they're like, oh yeah, you guys, you know, we're going to go, we're telling your parents, you guys are going to jail. But once again, like the laws are not really enforced as much, so much now, nowadays since the country is moving and been more different direction, you know? Yeah. Was the, what, how, like, how was the school experience different? Did you, did you like the new school that you were at in Canada? Yeah. Like, to be honest, I didn't mind it. You know, like teachers are not as strict. You're not getting your ass kicked. <laughs> you're not getting, cause I'm going to tell you when I say like you got beat up in, in Zimbabwe, I'm not talking about beat up cause you did something crazy, like you broke the windows or like you, or you said a swear word. I'm telling you, like, let's say you had a quiz, you got six questions wrong. You'd get beat up for that. You had teachers who'd say, I'm beating you up. I'm giving you like one strike for every answer you got wrong. So that something like you didn't do your homework, you're getting your ass kicked. You're talking in class, you're getting your ass kicked. So you got beat up for just about anything. Like, you say the wrong answer. They're like, I told you this yesterday. I taught you guys this. It's in the curriculum. You're getting your ass beat. So, like, being beaten up was actually part of the curriculum. Like, you would be beat up for... It was used not just as a disciplinary tool, but actually in order to, like, actually teach you stuff. If you got stuff wrong, you were beaten up as kind of, like, uh, punishment, you know? For that. So, like, you, you were getting beat up for everything. And I'd say, like, in a day, I probably got beat up, like, four or five times. And that's every day of school. Since I was in grade one. Until I was 16. 
probably like maybe like three or four times that I did not get beat up that entire time. So like that's how common it was. That's how it was like such a part of the school system. Did you find it difficult to change the way you learned? Because like you must have like that if that was part of how you were taught, then like once you get to Canada and they're not beating you up, is it like, oh, well, I don't have to do anything now? Like how, how did you like change your attitude toward learning? Like to be honest, I actually wasn't like that much of a change for me. To be honest, I actually had less stress now and I was more willing to take more risks and be more creative because now I felt like, okay, like I'm not going to, they're not going to beat me up. What's the worst that's going to happen? You know, whereas like if you're in Zimbabwe, like even in like, maybe you're taking a creative writing course, like you're so forced to stay within a certain line. Cause you, if you go outside of that, like if you, if you get it wrong, you're screwed. You get your feet. <laughs> yeah. So like I, I wasn't taking school as seriously anymore, but at the same time, I noticed I didn't have that much disdain for school. Like I wasn't like, man, I don't want to go to school anymore. I hate school. Like it actually, like it was less more anxiety on me. Cause I was like, man, you know, like I'm not going to beat up if I get this wrong. Like, you know, like there's really nothing that's going to happen. So it was in a, in a good way so much. And on top of that, like, if you're not getting beat up, like, whichever way you look at it, that is a positive for me. At yeah. least. Definitely a positive. Yeah, I'd pick that over getting my ass kicked. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. It, it, Jordan tells me you have all sorts of crazy stories. If, if, uh, if Jordan could pick one story for you to tell here, what, what do you think he would want you to tell? Me? Oh, man. This guy <laughs> probably about getting launched. <laughs> oh. I don't know if you, like, ever, did he ever tell you what getting launched is? Mm-mm. Well, yeah, really, I hope you ate early on today, so, yeah. <laughs> but basically, like, back home, like, back in Zimbabwe, you had kind of, like, I told you, the bullying was really, really bad, you know? Like, over there in boarding school, you really had to fit in. Like, there was no choice. You had to fit in right side in. Like, or else you were gonna be an outcast you know because like this is like i said this was big brother you were living with a group of strangers the first day i went to school i met like a group of strangers eight (laughs) strangers in the same room and then in one complex it was all 24 of you and these are people you've never met in your life before some of them are from different parts of the country like zimbabwe is not a homogenous place like there's also a different line of thinking depending on when you go. Some are really conservative, some are super liberal, some just don't give a fuck. And then like once you had all those people you met, you had to now get along with them and find a common ground, find a way to coexist since you're now living with them. And then over there, like I said, you know, people got clicked up. And then if people didn't, didn't like you, if you were an abrasive personality, you were too loud and obnoxious, like you got punished for that. And one of the things that happened that people would do, like, let's say you were like just a hater, you know, and like you were, you were just causing problems. Like, or in big brother terminology, you were trying to flip the house all the time, you know, trying to stir the pot. Well, that, that stirred something else up for you. Like basically in the start of the school term, people would, there would be a bucket that a bunch of people would grab. And then in the bucket, <laughs> Jesus, 
Which, by the way, I do not condone this. <laughs> I, am, I do not endorse this whatsoever. <laughs> Literally, you would have everybody would piss inside the bucket. And some would even take a dump inside there. And then you'd have one guy who would stare this, which usually, like, I don't know why, who volunteered for that. But there'd usually always be one volunteer eager to stare it up. Like, I got it. <laughs> And then the person would stir up all that feces, urine, whatever. And then once they stirred all that up, they'd dig it in a hole and you'd let it fester. And this is not just one bucket. Like this, a whole bunch of group of people are doing it. Like this is for that one player hater at the end of the term, that one crazy abrasive person. And then at the end, when the school year ended, because obviously you can't do this shit in the beginning of the year, you're going to get suspended or expelled. On the school year at the end, usually when that guy was probably sleeping, knocked out, whatever, you know, they'd grab that bucket. And I think you know where this is going. <laughs> uh, and that's when you get launched. And basically the term launching is when they launch that shit onto your bed. Oof. And you'd be lucky if you were not sleeping that night because then they just put it on your bed. But if you were idiotic enough to pick that one night to take a nap when you know it's hostile, you know people are getting lunch because you, usually you'd have a list of people, you know, who made that blacklist, that hit mm-hmm. list. And these are all the people who are talking trash, people who are not really, who are causing problems. And then people would get launched, man, like each, like, and this would happen yearly. And once again, like surprisingly, nobody ever got in trouble for this because it was just tradition. Like, you even had some of the teachers writing up people on the list going like, oh, you guys launched this kid. Like, this kid's been, like, giving me a hard time in class. Like, I want you guys to launch him. And he'd probably, like, give you cash or some extra food in the chow hall. And then, like, people would get launched, man. And, like, that last night of school, you just have dozens of people screaming, going, like, fucking out, like, running outside and shit. Like, yeah, it, it was pretty bad. Luckily for me, I, I never really got launched because, like I said, like I was smart enough not to piss people off or at least make amends when it came launch time. You know, that was the time where you really bury the hatchet. <laughs> yeah, it was bad. Uh, so, <laughs> wow. Did you ever did you ever participate in a launching? Nah, I, <laughs> maybe like I never participated but at the same time, like, if you're complacent in it and you're not waking the person up, I feel like that is indirectly participated. Because you still, like, you still let it happen. So, like, yeah. I, like, I would take responsibility and I'll say by default, I participated in that, you know, because like, I, I had it happen. But at the same time, I don't want to make the hit list. Like, who knows? Yeah. I might get launched next year. I'll be like, yo, see, Godfrey, uh, he thinks he's all that doesn't participate in the launch well okay you get launched so like you had to play along but yeah like i did not participate in the pissing in the bucket or no like i i found that kind of weird i'm like i'm not shitting in a bucket man and most uh, of the time people were pissing all in one line i was like yeah i don't know about that guys <laughs> can i can i put mine in a urine cup and i can add it on later but like, yeah. yeah but they're like no you, you gotta do it in a line with everybody else i was like yeah i, I don't know that's that's weird i'll be a spectator yeah which i was for most of my boarding school i was just like more a spectator you know on the sidelines i didn't Mm. really want to get too much involved in the drama and in the boarding school politics and i just preferred kind of 
just staying on the outside, you know, where, and I found it that's where it was safest. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably true. Um, so how, how long were you in Canada before you decided to, uh, apply for Big Brother? Mm, I was, I came in 2008. So I applied for Big Brother. I think it's my first year of university when I was 22. So 16 to 22, uh, six years. Yeah. Right. Uh, what did you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I six years. What, like what, what prompted you to. 21 uh, actually. Cause like I turned 22 after. Yeah. What, what prompted you to apply? Well, like I just, uh, I, I had watched the U.S. version and I've actually, I'd, I'd become a Big Brother fan. I'd been watching, I watched season 10, 11, 12, 13. 14 15 and then like i just like always was like man you know i that seemed like something pretty cool to do but then i never really had like any desire to apply for it like i liked it as a spectator but never really even thought in my wildest dreams i'd actually try to audition and get on but the reason i actually really ended up auditioning was because like in 2000 and this was like a now my first year of university, like I was broke, didn't really have that much cash. And like, I was like starving, man. Like I was like having a hard time, couldn't pay my phone bill, had no job. And then I was like, man, I need to make some money somehow. And I remember telling my girlfriend, I was like, ah, you know what? I think I'm going to, my girlfriend at the time, I'm like, I think I'm going to try for Big Brother. I hear you win $100,000 there. And like, I always was confident enough that like I knew if I somehow made it on the show that it would it wouldn't be a difficult game to play because like I'd watched all the seasons and obviously as any super fan, like you have this ego and you're like, I could win this. <laughs> so I was like, man, this is a piece of cake. Like this is literally easy. And I had also watched the season one and two when Gary won and season two, like season one, I was going to try out just for the hell of it, but I didn't end up doing it anyway. Cause I was just like, ah, it's a big brother. I don't want to try out for this. But then like when really the pockets were hurting and I'm like, I got to make this money somehow. And also I had read on some of the online forums that you get paid to be on the show as well. So I was like, man, at least I can make a couple hundred dollars, you know, like how hard can it be to get on big brother? Cause I had watched the past seasons and I was like, you know, I, I'm pretty sure all you got to do is just talk a lot of shit in the <laughs> casting, you know, talk about the game and then you should be able to get on. So I just started reading on a whole bunch of forums. I read one. Uh, what's the guy who had a band? Is his name Mike something? Uh, he was Are you thinking C of Matt? Matt, yeah. Matt Hoffman. Yeah, that guy. He had a little guide he wrote on how to get cast in Big Brother as an average person or how an average guy got. You might be, you might be thinking of Dan, Dan Giesling. No, no, not that one. No, this is the Matt Hoffman's one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe it's a different name or a layman's term to get him on, but he had some sort of guide. Yeah. Maybe if I have the link, I'll send it to you after. Cause I know I've been sending that to everybody after I got on, but like, uh, he had that and he was pretty much writing. Cause I remember I was like, Matt, you know, that guy doesn't seem that interesting or exciting, but he got on the show. So I read his thing. Cause I didn't want to read the stuff of the people who are like, you know, really big personalities like let's say like a freaking like i don't want to read something like a devin or like a Donnie because those guys you know why they got on like yeah mm -hmm. like even if you saw them in a line you'd be like i'm picking this guy so i wanted to kind of read from the people who are kind of low-key and not really as loud so i read his guide on 
And then I read some of the tips he had on, like, oh, hey, you know, you got to play it up and whatever, which some of it I already knew, I already figured, but it reconfirmed what I already knew. I was like, oh, so that is what you got to do, because that's always what I figured when I was reading it. I also, like, was taking psychology, so I kind of had an idea of how I remember I even wrote a thesis on reality TV. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, you know, I kind of had an idea of the kind of people who made it on reality TV, what they were looking for. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to try out, you know, and my motivation was strictly cash. I just wanted to make any sort of money. And I knew I had a good shot of winning. I had a good shot or at least going far. So I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to audition. And I went on and then I was surprised I actually got on. Yeah. Uh, so what was, what, like, how, did it, did it change anything in your life after the show? Like after the show ended, uh, obviously you came close to the victory. Um, and I was, I was frustrated. Yeah. You didn't win. I'm sure you uh, were frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't even get enough questions in that final two question like, thing. How the cookie crumbles. Like I would like, as far as changing stuff, I wouldn't say it really changed much, you know, like not really. Not really that much at all, yeah. Like, obviously, I made a little more... I walked away with a little more cash, so I felt like my goal had been accomplished Why I initially went on the show. And then, like, obviously, you got you, you get a whole new following after that. But as far as anything, like, really drastic, like, you know, like, not really, man. Because like, I always kind of cringe when I hear people say, Big Brother changed my life. But I guess it's different for everybody. Yeah, like, you've heard that. People go like, oh, my God. My life has been changed. I was like, your life must have been pretty bad. <laughs> if you going on a show changed it that much. But like for me personally, like I won't take anything away from somebody who, because some people are super fans too, really super fans. And it's a huge deal for them. That's like their dream. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say going on Big Brother was my dream or even on my top 50 bucket list things. Like I just wanted to make money. <laughs> and I was like, that's why I'm going to go. And also, I watched the show. Like, if it was something like Top Chef, I probably wouldn't have done because, like, one, I don't cook. <laughs> and also, like, you know, I don't know much about cooking. But because I actually watched the show, I was like, you know what? I can actually do this. I'm familiar with how the game is played. I watched the show already. And I really need the cash, you know. And I feel like that's also the reason why I was able to do so well when I got in the house. Because I wasn't as starstruck with the whole moment i wasn't caught up in the sauce like oh i'm in the house yay like i had people kissing the ground in my season man making out with the <laughs> slot bucket doing all kinds of stuff i was like chill man <laughs> like, it ain't that serious bro <laughs> but like some people like it was like i'm telling you it was a huge deal to them that was the greatest thing they have ever or probably will ever do in their lives so and i feel like if you come into the game with that mentality like i'm not knocking it or anything but if you come into the game like that like you're gonna be you're gonna be caught up in the moment you're gonna be flustered and you're also gonna be a lot more uh like you're gonna have a lot of anxiety because you're gonna be thinking every move you make that oh with the great dan Giesling, i've done that or dr whale because if you're such a super fan i feel like you need to be somewhat relaxed in the Big Brother house because it's such a stressful environment in and of itself. And you don't want to add any more stress by setting expectations on yourself and coming in going like, oh, this is my one shot, my dream. If I don't do this, I'm screwed. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. Like, I have to do it. 
Like, I almost feel like I'd be so scared to come in thinking that way. But because I came in and I was pretty chill, I didn't really care much about what the slap tasted like. I wasn't excited to see the have not room and sleep on the have not. Like, it wasn't a huge deal for me. That's why I feel like I had more time to actually focus on the game and not be, I'm here. Yeah. Uh, what what was it like uh, after the show? You know, dealing with social media and stuff. Had you been a big social media person before? No, not at all. Like, I think I had like forty followers <laughs> on Instagram. Yeah, so like I did not use Instagram at all. I had never used Twitter before. So like it was like it definitely. I was mostly on Facebook. Like I'm on Facebook a lot. I always post on Facebook, but Twitter. IG, Snapchat, I didn't have Snapchat. So like it was definitely like a huge, like definitely a huge change. Like it was actually like I feel like I was more stressed outside the house for those first few weeks than I was ever playing the game. Cause I you had all these people now messaging you, mm-hmm. feeling pressure that now I gotta post stuff. Like I gotta interact with these people. People going like, follow me, please. I was rooting for you. Give me this one follow, like my comment. People DMing you, and I have to reply to all those DMs and everything. So it was pretty stressful, you know, because like I've never really been that huge on Facebook. And the only time I ever tweet, it's to tweet about Big Brother. But I've never really tweet about just random things happening in my life right yeah so yeah that was a huge change for me definitely like having to now use social media and all of that and like for the first few months it was driving me crazy like my phone ringing and my sister's like you know you don't have to answer it you don't have to reply i was like yeah but i feel like a douchebag if i don't even comment back (laughs) and they're commenting to me right Yeah, so that was definitely, like, a huge change. That's the one thing I was not prepared for. Because, like, I knew, like, I never, I didn't follow any of these Big Brother people on Instagram. Like, I didn't even know what their social media was. So I didn't have an an idea of what it was going to be like. That, like, I was kind of, like, surprised, taken aback by it. And I was like, how did all these people find me, first of all? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even have my name on it. Uh, did you um did you like did you start like getting into it and like like looking at all like the discussion about like your game and what people thought of you or was it really just like dealing with the people that were reaching out to you yeah it was just mostly dealing with the people that were reaching out to me yeah like as far as like uh how my game was like i never really got a chance to look at maybe on if i'd scroll down like maybe like a random youtube video I kind of see some comments to get the idea of what the feel was like. But it was mostly just people telling me that, like, oh, your game was awesome. We loved you. You played great. And that's, like, that was where all my information was coming from, just people messaging me. I wasn't really, like, seeking out to see how my game was. Because, like I said, also coming onto the show, like, I didn't care if I left there and people were like, your game was bad. Or if people left there and were like, your game was the best we ever saw. Like, to me... Even right now, it's obviously it means something in terms of I appreciate the sentiment that people get what I was doing in the house, get where I was coming from. But it's not like a huge deal where I'd be like, man, you know, like I want them to know. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> like I said, I just came on the show to strictly make money, not to leave a legacy behind or not to. So like I didn't even care like if I had to be cutthroat in the house and I had to stab some people in the back. I wouldn't have left the house going like, man, I hope people don't think I did what I did that week was bad, you know, like, so like I wasn't 
I wasn't even really interested in looking at what people thought about my game. Like, you know, I cared more so about how people thought about myself on the show, like how I presented myself. If people thought like, you know, I was a good guy, that's the only thing I was, I would say I was worried about. You know, I didn't want people to think like, you know, I was a bad person or like I was a snake or stuff like that about my actual character. But as far as my game, I didn't really care, you know? Yeah. Would you, uh, would you go back if they, if they asked you to? Yeah, absolutely. Like I definitely like I would, but I would only go back if it was a full All Star season. Yeah, because I feel like me going back as just a returning player, it's been done so many times, and I'd have such a huge target on my back, and I just don't feel like I'd do well. Even though, if history is to tell us anything, whenever one player comes back, they always seem to make it to the end, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how crazy is that? Even though logically, every logical thing would tell you that the odds are stacked against you. So, like, I don't know. But, like, I'd only want to go back if it's an all-star. Because, like, you know, I already know these people outside the house. I already know how they think. And I feel like going back in with a full returning cast, I'm, like, I have a lot more information at my disposal. And I feel like it would be literally that easy <laughs> like i wouldn't even be stressing i don't think i'd even have to practice going back like i just have to I'd be, just put me in you know because like i already know how everybody thinks how they're like you know their personalities i already kind of know how to talk to them how to interact with them how not to rub them the wrong way and i feel like it would be really easy to just let their big egos you know throw it down in there whilst i just sit back relax and then coast by again I feel like that's, yeah, that's the easiest time I'll have replicating what I did. (laughs) Whereas with a new house guest, the scariest thing for me personally in the Big Brother house is not knowing who you're dealing with, not knowing who you can trust. Because these are really things that you got to have that instinct, you know, like me, mine is not that great. You know, like I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a good judge of character in knowing who to trust and who not to. So like, that's something that would worry me that like, you know, can I trust this person? Whereas with people I've seen play, not only do I know who to trust, I've seen your guys game. Like I know what you guys are going to (laughs) do. Yeah. I probably know who's aligned with who right off the bat too. So like, I feel like it would such be such an easy, easy game, you know, that I, yeah, that's one condition in which I'll be really eager to go. But any other scenario, I'd kind of be, you know, because I also don't want to ruin the kind of reputation I have right now, you know, like get voted out first and people will be like, see, it was a fluke. I knew he got lucky. Yeah, you do see, you do care a little bit. Yeah, you know, like, because it is, I'm telling you, man, like it can happen. Like we saw on Survivor when Tony came in with a huge ego this guy digging for idols the first day and they got his ass out right away, you know? Yeah. So like, yeah, like that, like definitely like, even though it's not such a big deal, of course you don't want to be that guy who yeah. did so well and comes back. Cause now I actually have a certain expectation to live <laughs> up to. It's not like I'm playing the game for the first time. And if I do bad, it's like, whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, but like yeah, I definitely go back if it was all returning cast or even like five returning cast. You know, as long as there's some people I kind of know what they're about, 
Yeah, well, I remember saying uh, I felt like if you had been on Big Brother, Big Brother Canada five, like that would have been a good oh, spot yeah, for definitely. you. Oh yeah, definitely. I think I would have won. <laughs> what do well, you mean but, a good but spot? But then it turns out, then it turns out Kevin was basically unbeatable. Like uh, yeah. that might have been dangerous. So what's the end? Because that yeah. would have been an interesting season. Because like I feel like right off the bat. I had such a have such a good relationship with Ika outside the house that I know right away I would have aligned with him. Bruno's obviously my boy. I would have aligned with him. I know, like I you have, could have been the glue. You could have kept them together. I, oh man! Like that's <laughs> why when they showed the cast, I was like, "Are you kidding me? You telling me all I had to do is beat that? Oh, and Netta has already been screwed by production with her five week safety. So I was like, that would have been so easy." <laughs> like, I feel like the competition was so slim in that season that, like, half the people cast on, I'll tell you right now, they were cast more so for being a big personality and kind of, I feel like they were actually cast so that you can see their game crumble before you feel <laughs> your own eyes, you know? Because I'm telling you, like, hey, I love Gary, but Gary was not playing that season. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. what this guy was doing, man. And who else? Freaking... Cassandra, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, what are these people doing? Are you guys there to win? Or are you guys there to get some more camera time, expand your 15 minutes and kind of like, you know, give us a a few more one-liners? I feel like, yeah. And I feel like also they had an expectation to them, you know, like maybe they were like, you know what? They've given me a second chance. I got to go hard again. I got to give them what they saw in me to bring me back which I was like, no, you don't. You don't have to be the personality you came in. Yes, they put you because you were a clown or because you were loud, but you don't have to do that. Like, you're already on. You can now just actually play the game. So I feel like there were just, there were a few serious returnees that season. I won't name any names, but like, I feel like the rest were literally, maybe, maybe they thought they were just going for fun, but like, some of those guys were just not playing. And I was actually really disappointed. Yeah. I I was disappointed not to say... I thought it was a, a huge mistake not to put you on that cast. And if they don't bring you back, then uh, that's... Uh, I, I've I've gone on record to say... You I think they, a they, Canada production. <laughs> they, they've made a lot of mistakes with twists, but it, not bringing Godfrey Manguiza back to Big Brother Canada would be the biggest one of all. Oh, man. That would definitely... The, the biggest twist of those twists. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so you mentioned like, uh, studying psychology. What, like, what are you, like, what are, what are you trying to do as a, as a job here? So as a job, like I was thinking mostly for trying to be like, I actually wanted to be like a counselor, like kind of like a marriage counselor and stuff like that. Cause it just seemed like such an easy job. <laughs> <laughs> like the whole reason I took psychology just seemed like pretty like easy, like, you know, and like, I'd always was interested in reading those psych one-on-one books psychological facts that like i I just kind of gravitated to it and then yeah my end goal if i do decide to pursue a career in that would be definitely either even psychiatry but mostly just like as a counselor or a sports psychologist you know kind of like you know a role like that where i just get to talk to people sit down I, i figure i'm pretty good at listening well, at least appearing like I'm listening. So that would be like a really good job for me. Tell you, when you grow up in a house full of women, you learn how to be like, yeah, really? Oh my God, no way. She did that? Wow. Like you really got to 
be a good listener. So I feel like it would be such a great job job for me. You know, people are telling me their problems and then I just got to be like, yeah, yeah, awesome, dude. And then get paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I'll try to offer them solutions as well. Yeah. Well, how, so how is that going? Like, are, are you uh, still in school for no, it? No, I actually graduated. Like, I have my bachelor's now, but I want to go back and get my master's. Right. And then from then on, see what I'm able to get. And then so, sort of just, like, take it from there. So uh, it's, do you have it? Do you have like a plan yet of, of like when you're going to go back or oh, no, like I have no plan at all. <laughs> I'm literally just playing it by the ear right now. I just seeing what happens, you know, like what's the saying again? Uh, ah, I forgot something about go with the, go with the flow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's uh, how I do things. Oh boy. So it's how it's why I'm it's why I'm a podcaster. So that's exactly see like, like you like you're doing something that you really enjoy that you really love like you've always like kind of like because I know you're big into like reality TV and shows right mm-hmm. so like you're good right now or like what are, you ever tried to be on one <laughs> <laughs> I haven't no because you know yet. what I feel like we have not the two things I want to see on Big Brother that I've yet to see is I want to see like a really a podcaster and I'm not talking about a podcaster of somebody lying like oh yeah I did one podcast like I want to see an (laughs) actual podcaster like one of those guys who analyze the game I want to see one of those people get to play just to see because it's almost like you're (laughs) a critique of the show you're a critique of the game you're breaking apart people's strategies saying what they should have done wrong, should have done right. I feel like that would such be such a good angle. And I feel like the BB fandom would love to see that. To see, because like... You, you would love to watch me crash and, and burn. Yeah, not even that. Like, I actually... <laughs> like, I actually think, like, one of those people would do pretty well. Because I feel like when yeah. people say super fan, the word is kind of thrown around. And I feel mm. like casting, when they cast for a super fan... I don't know if they really understand what superfan means. Because, like, when they cast superfan, they cast people who are like, oh, my God, I love Big Brother so much. Uh, I want to be on there so bad. But I'm like, yeah, I guess that's a superfan. But, like, when I'm thinking superfan, I'm thinking somebody who knows the game, has studied the game, knows not somebody who knows every season and can say, oh, that person was voted out there because, like, that's trivia. But I'm talking about people, superfan in the sense of, like, a Peter Brown somebody you know like people who like you know actually analyze it and actually break it down and actually like kind of know know their shit but whenever they cast super fans they cast you know somebody who looks like a nerd and then we're supposed to automatically believe that they are super fan and then on top of that the said nerd usually knows shit about the game they just love big brother a lot and therefore are now considered a super fan and that's why super fans get a really a bad rep because when they yeah. get evicted, people are like, oh, see, look, these super fans don't know anything. But I'm like, that's because that person was not a super fan. They were just somebody who really liked the game, but they were not super fan in the sense of they study the game. They know everything. They know every strategy. Like me, I feel like in my season, I was more of a super fan than the self-proclaimed super fans. Because <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, yeah, you've named all the seasons. You've named all the winners, but you really haven't shown me anything about what you actually know about the game, what you know. I'm like, tell me about this guy's strategy. Tell me why it was bad. Tell me why it was good. Don't just tell me that that person was the best. So like, yeah, 
And the second thing I'd like to see is if an actor got on the show mm. and not an aspiring actor, not a, oh yeah, I took acting <laughs> classes. But I feel like if they got in somebody like maybe like from a soap opera, that's not really well known, but a working actor, somebody who actually acts for a living. Cause like, if you look at the big brother game, you're basically acting to some degree, you know, in the house, you want to, mm. you know, you want to hide your emotions. And I'm like, who does that better than a stage actor or a professional actor, you know? So those are the two things I want to see cast. I feel like it would be such a huge angle and such a huge thing that people would want to see. Like, how would an actor do well in a game of lying? Well, that's why, that's why I was excited about Shannon Elizabeth. Oh, um, yeah. But unfortunately, it didn't turn out super not, great. Yeah, not at all. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. And another thing, too, like, I feel like it would be hard to find a working actor because they're probably not going to want to do... Like, you know, yeah. but still, I feel like there's some actors out there who would want to do it. Not like famous, but like somebody who just is actually doing it for a living. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's a lot of podcast people who would audition or who would do it if they were asked, you know, and given like a good offer. I'd feel like they'd do it, put their oh, yeah. reputation on the line. <laughs> would you do it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like I've always said, like, I would I would. And uh, I would apply for yeah. Survivor before I applied oh. for Big Brother, just like more prize money. Do you feel like it would kind of affect your like it would kind of affect like your what do you call it? Your bragging rights or your what's the <laughs> well, like uh, yeah, my, my your credibility. Yeah, that, exactly. Uh, you feel like your credibility would be affected if you went on Survivor. And let's say not even that you were like the first one out, because I feel like first one out, people can always kind of say that, oh, I didn't get enough time. Mm. But let's say you were third or fourth out, which you really can't make an argument there. Like, it's like you had time to play the game. But do you feel like if you got voted out off the island, like, you know, pre-merge, do you feel like that would affect your credibility when you're now? It, it definitely would. It, like, uh, and, and like, I, I, I yeah. know what it's... Every time I have a guest on the podcast uh, to talk about Big Brother, or anytime Jordan said anything about Big Brother, <laughs> There is, there are always countless people like, oh, Jordan, you put yourself up on the block and got yourself yeah. evicted. You, you don't have the right to say anything about Big Brother. Meanwhile, they're listening to me, who has never played the game at all. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> that's true, right? Yeah, and you feel like you, like <laughs> at least they can't say that about you, though. But if you did play yeah. it now, you've opened the door up. That's why I also feel like you rarely see that many successful transitions from Big Brother player to Big Brother podcaster because they've already seen you play and everything you say now seems kind of biased or that you're just not credible because you didn't win. (laughs) Whereas if you never played the game, like I've found people actually listen more to guys and girls who run podcasts than they do to actual players because there's an argument that those people know what they're talking about. (laughs) <laughs> and that if they actually played, they might even be successful more than a lot of people. So, yeah, interested. Yeah, the, there's a there's a great uh, David Mitchell video. He's a he's a British comedian yeah. uh, where he talks about like he has this this reputation for being a really smart guy. Yeah. And um, and people are always like, oh, you must have such a high IQ. You must be in Mensa. Like, have you ever taken the test? Like what? Like all of this stuff. And he's just like. 
no why would i ever do yeah. that people already assume I'm smart. that i'm yeah. smart why like i don't need a certificate to prove it the only people that need a certificate to prove it are the that's people that don't true, seem yeah. smart the only i that's only downside if i take that his, test his face is the certificate right there yeah um so yeah i mean that's that's sort of how i uh feel about it yeah that's true you, you don't want to ruin a good thing that you got going on yeah but i like i i would like to to play the game for sure um and uh and it you know the the potential to win a million dollars doesn't absolutely oh and, yeah definitely yeah yeah um but uh but yeah i um just uh, and if if they if they if they offer if like if Big Brother casting approached me and they were like, "Hey, we want you on the show," yeah. um, I would probably say yeah. But like you would definitely, I don't think I would apply. It. I think so. Yeah, like you say, you you don't think like you would yeah go out of your way though to really apply. Yeah. Like you don't have right, as much yeah. motivation. Whereas for a million dollars, like yeah, like that. And in the Survivor too, I just feel like if we assume that I'm that my knowledge does me any good, yeah. then I want to go on the game that has the the least amount of variance to it, right? That's true. Big yeah, Brother it's Survivor to twists. Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah, it's a little more straightforward. Yes, and it, it's it's more reliance on you. Like there's less. There's still a lot of luck involved in Survivor, but there's less luck involved in Survivor than Big Brother. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like in Big Brother, you could literally have all the power and all of a sudden a twist says, yep, you're not even the HOH anymore, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, yeah. you are the, the Imagine perfect that example in Survivor that. where you have an immunity idol and they say, oh, yeah, you won the immunity challenge, but you're actually <laughs> going home, buddy. Yeah. You you have the immunity, but actually yeah. uh, the, we um, we drew rocks. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> instead, instead, we're going to take that from you and give it to somebody else. And they're also going to oh, have the sole boy, power I'm to vote somebody you. out. And even with the idols, <laughs> at least you actually see that the person found it. Like you never, mm. they won't just say that, oh yeah, this person won this power. So like, yeah, it's definitely a lot. You have a lot less to worry about for sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's, it's been great having you on Godfrey. You've been, yeah, no uh, problem, you've been any, any, any final stories before we, uh, before we wrap this up? Oh man, I, I think I've already scared you enough, man. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. You're like no Africa um, for me, not here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to Cancun only. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for uh, for joining me. You've been yeah, amazing. no problem. It was great talking to you too, eh? Yes, uh, and thank you to all of the listeners who have uh, enjoyed. How can uh, how can people find you on social media? Oh yeah, uh, Instagram at Godfrey Manguiza, and then on Twitter it's at the Lady Pleaser. Oh, there you go. Name was given, not chosen. <laughs> <laughs> What what is the story behind that name? Who who gave it to? Like you? literally Bruno, yeah. You think it was a lady, but oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was literally like he was just rhyming. It's like, oh, that sounds like a good rhyme. The lady pleaser, Mister Manguiza, and it just it's just kind of caught on, yeah. From there, which it worked <laughs> well, out, there you go. yeah. Uh, well, uh, thanks again for coming on. Uh, hopefully, uh, we can get you back someday and, and talk some oh, more. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, take care too. All right, I'll talk to you later. All right, later, man. There you go. That was Godfrey Manguiza. So happy to talk to Godfrey. If you want to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It's The Terran Show. You can also find us on the reality TV Rahap Ups feed. That's R-H-A-P Ups. Uh, and um, check out all the other great coverage we've been doing because we got a lot of it. We got a lot of it. Uh, Big Brother, 
I'm on Twitch. Uh, we've got uh, American Ninja Warrior. It's all over the place. So uh, thank you for joining us again. I will see you next time. Parents asking questions. Parents finding out. Parents looking deeper. That's what it's all about. It's the Terrence Show. So you and